Hello and welcome back to the Mainly Football Podcast, it's episode 14. I'm joined by the usual Jack, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks George, yourself? I'm very good, thank you. And Mikey returning back from the Champions League semi-final episode. How are you doing, Mikey? I'm very well, thanks George, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very happy uni's over, summer's upon us. Uh, lots of football to watch. Lots of football, yeah. And uh, it's going to be some good times ahead. So, in today's episode we'll be discussing the Champions League final between Liverpool and Spurs. We'll be looking at England, uh, the men's team in their Nations League campaign. We'll also be looking at the um, FIFA Women's World Cup, um, more focusing on England and their chances ahead of the competition. And we'll also be talking about the Anthony Joshua fight against Andy Ruiz Jr. and the upset there. So, starting off, Champions League finals, Spurs versus Tottenham, 2-0. Mohamed Salah and Origi getting the goals. Um, What do we make of of the game? I'll start with you, Mikey. Um, it was a bit of a strange one, wasn't it? The big build-up of the All-English Champions League final and then it was a bit of a anticlimactic game, I suppose. It was a little bit strange, obviously. I think it kind of got dictated a bit by the early penalty. Getting it so early and Liverpool going ahead, it probably would have been a completely different game had that not have happened. And in turn, obviously, Spurs have a lot more of the ball, a lot more of the chances and probably should have done a lot better, to be honest. Liverpool were more clinical, took their chances right near the end and just finished it off. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a tough one really. With with Spurs with that early goal conceded, it was it was the the opposite of what you want happening in those sort of opening yeah. five minutes. You need to keep it tight. Um, I saw that Allison actually made eight saves in the match, which he he perhaps played played a bigger part than everyone realised. Mm. Um, what did you make of the penalty instant, Jack? We'll start with that. Um, I didn't really see it too well. I think I've seen one replay since. It kind of looked partially shoulder, partially chest. I'm I'm not really too sure. Um, but I know for certain it, certain it impacted the game. Obviously, I think it was 25 seconds in, they've got a penalty. And I remember saying to my mates at the time, I think it's going to be Trippier part two, as in when England scored too early in the <laughs> semi-finals, could Liverpool potentially score too early? Um, but no, they carried on. Origi bagged late on and went on to win. Yeah, definitely. And I, what One thing I sort of... Obviously, the penalty was um, kind of... Even though the VAR's used there, it's, it's one of those ones where it's like people are still debating it and there's no clear-cut thing. Obviously, referees in the Champions League this season have been instructed to kind of... Um, if, if the arm is in an unnatural position, um, they've kind of... Any sort of contact like that, they've been told to give a penalty... It's quite clear that Sissoko is pointing for the yeah. defenders to cover space. It's kind of an unfortunate, mm. but um, it's just one of those, really. It's such an unfortunate incident. But um, with Spurs, there was a kind of a few um, controversial things in terms of their team lineup. So Lucas Moura was dropped after scoring a hat-trick to get them into the final. Um, Harry Kane replaced him. Uh, what do we make of that, Mikey? Such a tough one, isn't it? Obviously, Harry Kane, club captain, Mr Tottenham and... For him to come back into a Champions League final, I think a lot of people probably did expect it. Not that he deserved it, because obviously Lucas has scored the hat-trick, but I think Tottenham, you'd probably say now it's difficult to say, but they're probably not going to get there in the next few years. It might be a a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and for someone like Harry Kane, it's almost like he has to play. I think if the shoe's on the other foot, and this is a Liverpool player, for example, say Mo Salah, um, in the same position, he perhaps wouldn't start. Because, you know, Liverpool have got that quality to get there. But it was almost like Poch felt like he had to put Kane in because it's like a once-in-a-lifetime game. Personally, I do think Lucas probably should have started. They could have gone with both of them. Obviously, you would have had to sacrifice someone else. But, yeah, I think Lucas probably should have started over Kane. Yeah, I think with 
it was quite clear you could tell he'd just come back from injury and wasn't fully fit. He only had eight eight touches in the first half, uh, which is quite ridiculous when he's the sort of player who drops back, creates the sort of um, creates the play, and it's for to- the way Tottenham play is crucial. Mm. Um, do you think it was kind of almost bad man, man management or fall into the pressure from Pochettino there, Jack? I think. Although it's very tough on Lucas and you do have to feel kind of sorry for him in that sense, I think any manager in the world, if you're given Harry Kane at your disposal, head of a Champions League final, you'll put him in. I think as hard as to, as hard of a decision as it is to drop more, uh, Lucas, I think when you've got one of the best number nines in world football, bearing in mind it's not like they will be pl- replacing him with a recognised number nine who may... Who, who could have struggled against Van Dijk. Obviously, we don't know how Lucas would have fared, but if, if he's coming up against the best centre-back in the world, arguably, then he's not got much of a chance as it is. And Obviously, Kane, Kane struggled to make an impact. I kind of felt... I felt Son should have gone on the left, Lucas on the right, Eriksen at 10. I felt Deli Alley's not been up to scratch um, recently. His form's not been... At best, and especially given Morris heroics in the semis, I felt I felt uh, Ericsson could have been at ten, and then Kane up top. Yeah, I, I guess with the with that early goal from Liverpool, it's it's kind of thrown the plan out of the window for them. Mm-hmm. And I imagine if it's nil nil, the longer it goes on, you've got Kane. Uh, they're not just having to fight back and try and get the le- the equaliser. Maybe Kane can make more of an impact there. Yeah. But I think with Liverpool, once they do get that lead, it's so hard to take it off them. And I'm sure if you look at their stats for when they do go goal ahead, they very rarely um, sort of give it up, do they? Exactly. You, you look at it this season in the Premier League, they've got one defeat. That one defeat came to Manchester City. City opened the score in bank. I know they equalised and obviously Leroy Sone came up with the goods at the end. But if Liverpool, if Liverpool go one goal ahead against most teams in the world, it's game over in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And um, what do you make of that, Mikey? Yeah, I just think obviously we go back to Kane. Um, you're talking about Kane's performance, perhaps not being up to scratch. You could see it influencing the players around him as well. We didn't see the best out of Ericsson. We didn't see the best out of Delhi. Even Son, who's been so influential in the Champions League run this year, especially at the Etihad in the quarterfinals. It's almost like because Kane's so key to their play, he sacrificed almost the whole team mm. just to get him in, and in the end, it didn't pay off. Yeah, I mean, I would say. It's very easy just to say, to criticise Spurs and, and Kane, but obviously there's nothing he could have done about that early goal. So it's one of those where it's just it's quite unfortunate. But uh, you've got to credit Liverpool. They Whilst it wasn't the most exciting game, wasn't I wouldn't say both either team played fantastically well. Liverpool controlled the game, didn't look too... didn't really allow Spurs too many clear-cut chances, in my opinion. Um, I mean, you, you look at the whole... the back four... Matip had an unbelievable game. He's been um, incredible lately as well. Well, it's just his his sort of performance levels have been raised by Van Dijk and having Trent to your right as well, who was fantastic. Robertson, um, his normal self. Uh, I think when Liverpool, when their back four is playing that well, um, they're, they're just unstoppable, probably really. probably the best in the world, to be honest. If you look at their back four, obviously... You and probably, Alisson, well, even back five, yeah, including back Alisson. Five. So if you look at that, obviously that centre-back position next to Van Dijk, they, they seem to tweet that, but... Obviously, Joe Gomez has had some fitness problems. If you get him playing to his potential, like we've seen with Matip, even when Lovren's come in alongside Van Dijk, they're relatively decent. So if you get that back five playing well, there's not many better in world football. Yeah, definitely. Um, So that ends our Champions League chat. We'll move on to England and their impending Nation League semi-final. So they're playing uh, the Netherlands this Thursday. 
Portugal playing Switzerland in the other tie and the winners are playing in the final of that of the next game on Sunday. Um, what do you make of England's chances? I'll start with you, Jack. I think it'll, the winner of this game will definitely go into the um, will be the winner for <laughs> definitely me. Definitely going to the final. <laughs> I know we're very Michael Owen there, but I think <laughs> whoever does win um, will be the winner. I see Netherlands have got a very strong squad. Obviously, they're without uh, Van Dijk, but they've got Matis De Ligt at the back. Um, strong forward line as well. So, solid midfield, playing football very well under Ronald Koeman and exciting as well. I think England, likewise, playing some exciting football under Southgate. I think uh, been been unfortunate with a few injuries that have meant people have been out of the squad. Um, it would have been nice to see the likes of Hudson Odoi and um, Harry Winks fully fit. As I thought, Winks was actually quite quite good in the Champions League final, despite him coming back from injury. Mm. Um, but yeah, I remember. I think I talk, we talked about this a long time ago, and I think I think I tipped England, and I'll stick with it. Yeah, do you think uh, do you think Kane will be fit enough? And if he's not, would you say who would you have to replace him? Well, obviously the like for like replacements, Callum Wilson. I don't know whether he'll go with. Well, I think the starting front three on paper would be Sterling, Sancho, Kane. I think Rashford's obviously an option for me. I'd go Rashford on against the Netherlands because I don't think I think one Kane would struggle to deal with. Uh, two games in four days especially just coming back from an injury and two I think Rashford deserves the chance up front although I do like Wilson um, but it'll be interesting to see what see what Southgate does Yeah and you mentioned a few young names there like Winks for example Hudson-Odoi um, how Mikey in terms of the sort of seriousness of the competition obviously every team wants to go and try and win it And but how sort of how much chance do you reckon can you see Southgate giving youngsters in the first team? I think he'll give them a lot of chance, especially this week in the Nations League. You're looking at, the, it's a young core of a squad anyway, so he's going to have to play young players. And we saw last year, he trusts his young players. You saw that in the World Cup. I think leading up to this, he's stuck by the same philosophy, young players and form. And I think he'll do the same again. Um, yeah, I think England, obviously, young core of a squad. I think I remember when the team came out, um, you looked at the replies, particularly when... Um, the 27 was announced originally. A lot of people kicking off over James Madison and Aaron Wan-Bissaka not being in there. I think just it's quite simple. They're playing in the European Championships for England and obviously AD Boothroyd is going to want to keep that same core of players and Southgate's going to want to keep his core. Um, I don't really feel Lingard deserves to be in there on performances. I think if there wasn't an under-20 under 21 European Championships, Madison would be in there over him. That's my my opinion anyway. But I think, yeah, a lot of the core, Sancho, Declan Rice, they'll all get a lot of minutes in there, potentially starters as well. Yeah, definitely. And you're going to add to that, Mikey? Yeah, I think the Nations League as itself is a massive win-win for England because it's. I don't know if you'd class it as a massive major tournament, but it's almost giving those young players tournament experience. You know, a year before the Euros, a big tournament. And... You'd have to look at it, you'd probably say Southgate's more of a long-term planner towards them Euros rather than the Nations League. So this is great experience for the young players. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, speaking about Netherlands briefly, um, obviously they didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup and it's been a bit of a rough period for them the last year or two. But I mean, they'll be looking at this in a sort of, uh, we come up against a good England side, but you look at their squad as well. And on paper, it's, it's a very solid side. Would you kind of, you couldn't really write them out of the game, could you? Sort of what? What would you make of their chances against England? No, obviously, you can't. I think Memphis Depay will be particularly important. He's obviously been a talisman for Leon this season, and uh, in his 
role up front where he's been playing in France, he could cause some problems. I think. I don't think. I think without Van Dijk, I think they'll struggle. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure if Van Dijk's in the squad or not. Um, but if he if he isn't playing, they will struggle for me. I think England have just too, too much. Not so much pace, but kind of energy and will at the moment with this young squad for for the Netherlands, and I think that will that's what will get them over the line. Yeah, definitely. Um, but that brings us on to the FIFA, uh, the FIFA Women's World Cup, um, kicking off this Friday with France versus South Korea. Um, obviously, it's it's been we've talked about women's football uh, a fair amount this season, and it's been very interesting to especially sort of the the women's Premier League, um, but. Going going into this World Cup, it was USA were the the 2015 winners uh, four years ago, and I was looking at some of the stats. It was seven over 750 million viewers for that final, um, and is expected to be more for this year. So, I mean, what do you make of the the growing demand and popularity? I'll start with you, Mikey. I think it's massive. I think looking in now, it's quite easy to say that this will probably be the biggest women's World Cup ever. The amount of media attention heading into it is just we've never seen anything like this before. It's completely new. The quality of football is continuing to grow with you. You know, your women's Champions League is growing all the time. You know, we're seeing stadiums getting sold out week in, week out, and the quality is a lot better. I think the hype around women's football at the moment is the biggest it's ever been, and it'll only keep growing as well. Yeah, and obviously you um, you do media work for FC United um, women's team. Yeah. And would you say at that grassroots level, um, would you notice a difference maybe in crowds and, and sort of the engagement people are getting, the women's teams? Yeah, definitely. Man. And we've, we've seen it this season. We've kept on growing in terms of attendances. Um, and even just looking at, we had a, a Challenge Cup final the other week against Salford, obviously newly formed this year. There's a lot of attention around that. And we had over 400 people there. And it's like, you look at the Super League teams and the women's championship teams, and they're only they're only getting around that number, if not a little bit more. So I think that's where it comes from. The grassroots level is really the base of it. And it just grows and grows and grows from there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we'll talk about England now and England's chances. So uh, they played their most recent friendly against New Zealand. Uh, they lost 1-0. Um, on home turf at the Amex, unfortunately. But, I mean, they most recently beat Spain and Denmark, so um, all hope is not lost. But uh, in the group stage, they've got Scotland, Argentina and Japan. So um, what do you make of their chances going into this World Cup? I think it's I think it's very high. I'd, I'd say Germany, Germany, France, the USA and England are the top four for me. Um, I wouldn't look too much into the New, New Zealand defeat. Um, I thought England were quite poor against Denmark. I know Phil, Phil Neville wasn't happy at all with his performance at half-time, a bit more so at the end. And then against New Zealand, the football was a lot better. We are just lacking an end product in front of goal. Um, but yeah, we played some exciting stuff, and obviously it's not ideal to lose to uh, New Zealand in the last preparation game. Um, Japan will be a tough test, and so will Scotland. They've got... Uh, one Manchester City player and another former and two, I think two from Chelsea. I don't know if you've seen Erin Cuthbert's goal, yeah. um, long range strike and um, Caroline Weir with a screamer of a free kick as well last time for Scotland. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be a tough game, obviously a bit of local rivalry there, but um, I wouldn't write Scotland off, but I really, I really do see England doing well this tournament. Yeah, definitely. And um, in terms of key figures for the England team, um, who who would you point out as the main sort of players who we need for us to progress? Well, I think it's, beside the obvious ones, Karen Barsley, Steph Horton, the captain. Um, I think 
It'll be interesting to see what Phil Neville does out wide. Uh, England kind of lack natural wingers. Um, so Nikita Paris, the women's Super League top, uh, joint top scorer, I believe, who was at City, just gone to Lyon. She's playing on the right wing with Tony Duggan, who moved from City to Barcelona a couple of years back on the left. So they're both natural strikers playing on the wings. be interesting to see how they do in that respect. Um, I think Frank Kirby will be very influential, and particularly Kira Walsh at holding midfield. I think she's really come on the last couple of years. She's, I think she's only 21 years old and um, really proving to be one of the more mature figures in the side. Um, so, yeah, I think obviously Lucy Bronze, who is, um, in my eyes, one of the world's best female footballers, I think she'll be, she's more of an obvious figure to take centre stage, but um, hopefully, yeah, there'll be a lot of standouts to talk about. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you mentioned quite a few of the young players there, um, players like Fran Kirby, are, is, she's one of the few um, who was in the 2015 World Cup squad. Um, I mean, similarly to the men's team, there's a lot of these younger players coming in, sort of fresh, high-energy-level players. Um, but what do you make of that, Mikey? Yeah, I think it's great to see, obviously, Phil Neville's been similar to Southgate, as you say. He's brought in a lot of young players, and I think looking at someone like Nikita Paris, um, I'm I'm a big fan of Georgia Stanley. Yeah. She's come through at Man City this year. I think she's re- really come on a lot, and I think... You look at someone like Jordan Nobbs at Arsenal who's had a knee injury, so she's out of this World Cup. It's a big chance for Stanway to stand up and uh, really take her chance. Um, but I think in terms of the young players, it's great It's great to see the young players, but I think England's core really builds from experience. Mm. You've got Steph Houghton, the captain, Lucy Bronze, as Jack mentioned, you know Jill Scott. These are key players and they'll play a big part for England. Yeah, definitely. And before we move on to a couple of other questions about the World Cup, um, where do you both see the women's team finishing uh, this season? I want your early prediction. I'll start with you, Jack. I think we can win it. I think third place last time. Um, obviously, really unfortunate in the semi-final with the Laura Bassett own goal in the latter stages. Um, there's no reason why we can't go all the way. We've got obviously clearly got the talent. Well, uh, European, the European elite team in Lyon. They've obviously been picking up a couple of our players: Lucy Bronze, Nikita Paris, Isabel Christiansen, who's out through injury, but. Yeah, there's no reason at all why we can't go all the way this year. And what about you, Mikey? Same again, all the way. I think, obviously, the big teller for me was the She Believes Cup a few months ago. Yeah. yeah. And they had to play some of the best teams in the world there, and they ended up winning that. They drew with the USA, who they've typically not had a great record against. Mm-hmm. They beat Japan quite convincingly, and Japan are in their group, and obviously they held Brazil as well. So I think it's a big chance for England, this. It's a big tournament, and I think using that experience of the She Believes Cup and everything that they've put into it under Phil Neville, I think they can go all the way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, in terms of other teams in the competition, um, do you see any dark horses, anyone who could cause an upset? Japan. Japan. There's there's a lot of hype around Japan, but me personally, I think, obviously, they're in England's group. We've got a tough group as it is, um, and obviously England dealt with them well a few months ago. So if there is going to be a dark horse, I'd go Japan, but honestly, I'm confident with England. Personally, I go. Although I I, I do I really do rate Japan, I put England as group winners, and then I'd put my dark horses as Scotland. I think they've got a chance of coming sec- second in the group. They've got a couple of high-profile players, like we mentioned, and I think especially with the crowd in Scottish football, eighteen thousand they had at Hampden Park um, last week for their final uh, friendly game, I believe. Um, so the fa- Scottish fans will definitely be. Back be behind them as well, um, like the English, and um, hopefully yeah, we can get um, some great British teams going, doing well. Yeah, definitely. Um, you look at that England-Scotland game, and it's kind of 
it's because obviously with World Cups, it's it's the group stage. It's it's um one loss and it's kind of you're in a, a bad position already and that's the sort of scary scary bit of it and that Scotland game coming as England's opening game it's going to be a tough one um, but I mean hopefully they can get the victory in it I think these are the kind of games that the team need to be honest like those kind of games go straight into it you're up against the rival straight away it, it'll be good for them it'll be a good test like you mentioned there with uh, just coming back to your point about the She Believes Cup I think that's really important as well I think with Getting that feel of a trophy success um, is really important in building that winning mentality. Yeah. I think uh, if you watched the Lionesses documentary last night, I know you did. Um, it was kind of a lot. A lot of what the players were saying were about how Phil Neville's changed their mentality in terms of they talk about winning a lot more. Yeah. Um, they're obsessive about winning, and I think having that mentality and that determination, that drive to go all the way will really help them this year. Yeah, definitely. And um, just before we move on to our sport and focus this week, um, I just wanted to touch on, because we're talking about all these young players in both the men and women's team, and it's it's kind of not really been going too noticed until sort of recent times. And it's um, the potential for England to become kind of a great footballing nation for the men and women is, is kind of really coming to fruition now, I'd say. And I mean, if you look at, I mean, if England can go and win the Nations League and then the women's team go and win the World Cup, it's going to be some bright times ahead, certainly. Mm. Um, anything else to add, guys? Or? I mean, just like you said, there will be bright times. England um, under-21s have got the Euros. I know the under-20s are in a competition as well on the men's side. Um, so it's very much so exciting times. There's a lot of young players be wanting to prove themselves. Uh, as well as the experienced players to keep the place in potentially what could be another World Cup for some of them. But yeah, um, hopefully we can see England go all the way. So that brings us on to Saturday night slash Sunday morning's uh, heavyweight title fight between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz. Um, obviously a big upset, I'm sure you've already heard. Andy Ruiz Jr. becoming the, the heavyweight uh, champion. Um, he knocked down AJ four times whilst AJ knocked him down once. Um, he got knocked, AJ got knocked down uh, twice in the third round and twice in the seventh round, and then the referee um, called it off and um, and ended the game prematurely. Um, but what do we make of the fight? Uh, I'll start with you, Jack. Well, I didn't watch it, so um, <laughs> and yet to see the highlights. Obviously, the result is very it's remarkable. Really, uh, Ruiz isn't someone um, who you'd particularly associate with beating Joshua. His physique. Um, it's been looked at, looked down upon somewhat on social media, but it also shows that anyone can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. I think he's only had one defeat before this. Obviously, Joshua came into it undefeated, and uh, he's just kind of. I think the there didn't seem to be much media coverage of the fight, in my opinion. Uh, on social media, there wasn't too much. I wasn't I wasn't too aware of the fight before it happened. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that worked in Ruiz's favour slightly. Um, I might I might be wrong media coverage wise, but I feel because it was less less high profile as such, mm. um, maybe the media, or maybe he didn't have to deal with much media scrutiny. And
So um, yeah, obviously with with the Jarrell Miller, um, obviously he failed the drug uh, a drugs test, which means he he couldn't fight Joshua. Um, and then it was, I think maybe it's partially down to that because um, I don't know if you know the story. So Andy Ruiz Jr. actually contacted Eddie Hearn on Instagram, um, basically saying, "Let me fight him. I will win." Pretty much that's how I'd summarize it. Um, and he obviously did. And I think part of the media coverage was because it was. It was hyped up originally, and then it, it was kind of reorganised for for Andrew Ruiz Jr. But mm-hmm. um, and then you t- you talk about his weight there and his appearance. A lot of people are sort of laughing at that. But then uh, I was reading a Guardian article earlier actually, and um, some some doctor basically saying that if you if you're if you're fit enough to hold the weight, so you can have the excess body fat, um, it actually can allow you to have that extra sort of power in your punch. Okay. Um, so for something, yeah, and um, so that kind of did go in his favour and uh, also the fact that he was um, the complete underdog um, what did you make of the occasion Mikey? You have to say obviously it was a big occasion Madison Square Garden it's like this big fight but I think as we're alluding to here Ruiz very much did go under the radar um, I think everyone's just tipping AJ first fight outside of the UK just to go over and take his his almost his name his everything that he's built up onto a continental stage and it's just not really worked out obviously I think Perhaps it was more of the occasion for him with how big it was, obviously going over to the States and having to do the fight. But in terms of an actual boxing match, he's completely outclassed. Mm, definitely. Um, so nevertheless, it's been a great year for boxing overall um, with this sort of upset. And then we've seen Tyson Fury come back from his um, sort of troubles and, and overcoming challenges and actually um, winning his big fight as well. So um, yeah, looking at looking looking forward to this sort of upcoming fights and and um, seeing how AJ can come back basically. But uh, that brings us to almost the end of the episode. We're going to bring back another a feature which we've been a bit lazy with recently: the social post of the week. Um, it's not because we're not too funny, but uh, we just um, had exams and stuff. So, Jack, we'll start with you. What's your social post? Well, my head tells me I want to go with uh, registrabilities. Um, end of his career on Twitter as the... Uh, oh, I haven't seen that. Have you never seen Registrability? I've, I've seen loads of people retweet stuff Oh, before. yeah. He's, um, well, he's finally lived his... He says, lived it, loved it, farewell to the beautiful game. Uh, it's his farewell on Twitter. But I'm going to go with Anthony Joshua's post from, I think, a couple of months back. And he says, about to break the curse, hashtag June the 1st. Can oh, you guess yeah. who it's with? Drake. Drake. <laughs> and it's happened again. Yeah. Well, no one's going to be getting photos of Drake anymore. No, that's no. Said. <laughs> what about you, Mikey? I've got to go with, there's an account, I don't know if you've seen it, that's come up on Twitter a lot called Footy Limbs. Yes. Oh, yes. That's such a good account. It's, yeah, it's obviously showing, um, you know, just limbs, limbs in football. I really hope it's football. the video that I've just seen. Yeah, so basically, obviously, a lot of the limbs are quite good 9 out of 10 <laughs> 10 out of 10 quite good <laughs> well there's a, a post from I don't know if there was a, it was a big talking point at the time when uh, City plays Schalke oh not this the, I've uh, seen this for the first goal and uh, the limbs rating is 0 out of 10 <laughs> to be fair it was tw- 20 seconds after the goal <laughs> went in they stuck the fans on it was a great yeah. post well yeah City and um, there's, a, there's a lot of posts like that City and Liverpool fans digging each other for their support mm. but um I'll go for my post uh, about Liverpool, about their, their team bus, well, their celebration bus. Someone got the number plate and looked up on the <laughs> .gov UK website mm. uh, to see if it was registered. 
and uh, it turns out the Liverpool team bus, uh, the Liverpool celebration bus, uh, is untaxed. So Uh-oh. they're they're basically saying it's classic scousers. That's not me. That's them. <laughs> wow, not me. That's well. But um, that brings us to the end of uh, episode fourteen. We hope to be back next week, and um, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you very much. And it's been a bit of a shorter one. Um, Jack's in a bit of a rush. He's off to a football match tonight, aren't you, Jack? Indeed. And uh, not, always, not... De- always dedicated though to get here <laughs> on time before anyone else. Just about, just about. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, guys. See you soon, Mikey. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on again. Thank you very much, Jack. My pleasure. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Goodbye.